For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Yeah, so anytime you start a new book of the Bible, it's good to kind of draw back and talk about interpretation, talk about, you know, how we do what we do, how, you know, different people have different ideas about how to study the Bible. And what we really want to express is that the way to study the Bible is trying to figure out what its author means. That we shouldn't come to the Bible with this um, desire to kind of twist it into what we want. What we should do is we should try to understand what it was meant in each individual book when the author sat down and wrote it. And a big part of how to do that is to understand as much as you can about the author, about the culture that the author is coming from, and to understand the audience. Who were they and how would they have received these things that were, that were coming at them? And then you have something that you can evaluate and say, is this, is this something that I'm going to obey? that I'm going to say this is the word of God and I'm going to put myself under the authority of Scripture? Or is this something that uh, I don't accept? And we need to do that with the word of God because of the claims that it makes are so extraordinary. And so in this particular book, the genre of this is epistle. And what that means is it's just a letter. It's a letter written from an individual, and in this case, we're not actually positive who wrote this letter, which is pretty unusual when it comes to New Testament letters. I've studied of this a lot, and I am, I am personally very persuaded that this is written by Paul. And uh, I've got a good, a good posse behind me that would agree, but there are many that don't. And so at some point, I'm going to do my best through, you know, tonight and uh, the, the series that we're doing uh, to say the author of Hebrews. But at some point, I'm sure I'll say Paul, and then you can raise your hand and rebuke me for, because I don't know. There's evidence for, there's evidence against, um, but whoever is writing this is a first century Christian uh, who is very familiar with the happenings of the teachings of Christ, what was going on with the New Testament church, and is also very familiar with the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. And as you'll see at the end, he also knows guys like Timothy, and there's connections there with people and authors, uh, really from a lot of Pauline texts. But the point here is, what do we know about our audience? So it's hard for us to understand that when Jesus hit, we just finished studying the book of John here. So we saw the flow of Christ's life and that there was all this messianic expectation around that time with the Jewish people. They had been promised the Messiah. They were waiting for the Messiah to show up. And the Jewish men and women who came to faith did not see themselves as converting away from Judaism. They saw themselves as Jewish men and women who believed that the Old Testament had been fulfilled and the Messiah had come. However, a lot of their compatriots, a lot of their neighbors and, and, and friends and people in their synagogue 
went with the Pharisees and did not agree that Jesus was the Messiah. And so therefore, they were still waiting for the Messiah. So at that point, it wasn't Christianity and Judaism. It was Jewish people who were disagreeing about who the Messiah was, but everybody was in the the fold of Judaism at that point. And persecution started breaking out toward Christians being thrown out of their synagogues and even property being seized, people being in prison, because the enemies of Jesus were the political powers in Jerusalem. And so the early church very quickly was going through a very painful situation and had to get a grip and get a sense of what does all of this mean? And so the author of Hebrews, who has a deep love for the Jewish people, who is himself a Jewish person, is looking at this and wanting to encourage them to stick together and to persevere and to know that it is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that has moved in the person of Jesus Christ. And so as they face this fierce persecution, they're in danger of giving up. But if these guys give up, what are they going to give up to? It's not like us where we're like, I'm going to walk away from God and just go back to living life a-religiously. For them, it's like they're going to go back to traditional Judaism and say, you know, I was mistaken about this whole Jesus thing. Let's go back and we'll start making sacrifices in the temple and we'll start going to synagogue and we'll start doing these other things. That's what they're going to fall away to. And what the author wisely does is this. He brings his audience into the Old Testament and does something that all of us need which is as people of faith, as we struggle, as we face disappointment, as we face what seems like just random acts of chaos, uh, hardship and pain, or especially when we face rejection and pain because of our faith, we need to be reminded that God is real, God is good, and God is a God who keeps his promises and we can trust him. And that's exactly where the author of of Hebrews goes right in the beginning of this passage. Brown and Brown in their commentary, The Message of Hebrews, talk about what is the big picture here. They say the letter appeals to all these severely tested believers to keep their faith firmly anchored to the moorings of truth to maintain their steadfast confidence in Christ and to press on to mature Christian stability. This is it. They're they're going through a very difficult time. There are families that are being torn in half where some are believing in the Messiah and others are rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. And they are having to get through this and this is a process and this is actually nothing new in terms of the people of, of God. The history of the Jewish people is one of suffering, is one of hardship because of what they believe. And it's also one of incredible victory and incredible acts of God working through human history. But it's a call to faithfulness. It's a call to perseverance through and through, all the way from the beginning, all the way to the present day. The picture here is that we live in a world of chaos 
Where God set things up one way, it went a completely different direction because of human free will. And though God loves us and is sovereign, he does not remove us from the consequences of other fallen human beings' choices. And he does not remove us from the consequences of our own foolish choices. That we still live in a world that's broken. And so you can go back and look at the history of the Jewish people and see that they often came to this place of, God, are you there? God, can you hear me? God, why would you let this happen to me right now? I want to serve you. I want to love you. I want to follow you. And it just seems like the waves of misfortune just keep crashing in and in. Psalm 77, a psalm of David is a very good example. He says, will the Lord reject forever? And will he ever be favorable again? Has his loving kindness ceased forever? Has his promise to come an end forever? Has God forgotten to be gracious or has he in his anger withdrawn his compassion? Now who among us has not felt this way and said exactly these things to God? God, how can you let this happen? Why am I here? Why is this happening to me right now in my life? Because you are supposed to be gracious and kind and good and work all things to the good of those who love you. And David was just like this. He went through hard times and he said, God, this isn't supposed to be this way. But then he says in verse 10, then I said, it is my grief that the right hand of God most high has changed. I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your work and muse on your deeds. What is he saying? He's saying, when I get broken down, when I get depressed, when I start wondering, God, are you there? And what does this mean? And how does this work? Then I think about what you've done in the past. And I remember your faithfulness. I remember that you do come through. You do let us go through hard times, but you do come through. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your strength among the peoples. You have by your power redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and the sons of Joseph. David knew what the authors of Hebrews knew and what we need to know which is we need to remember the promises of God, the way that God acts, the faithfulness of God, and that is never more important than when we're in the midst of personal suffering and feeling like God has abandoned us. And that's what the book of Hebrews is all about. And the text that we want to look at starts right here in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. We're just going to look at the first two verses. He says, God... After he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, and these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the world. You see, the author is taking certain things for granted here because of who his audience is. When the author says that he spoke long ago to the prophets, what that's supposed to do is be like, oh, yeah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Isaiah, Elijah. We know all those stories. To them, those are the stories of 
what would be analogous to George Washington and his cherry tree to us. This is the nation of Israel that has the whole understanding of how God has worked and understand the fact that they exist, that they're a nation at all, and that they're there is a miracle recorded through the history of their people going back to the very beginning of creation. And so when he says, remember that God has spoke through the history of our prophets, he's invoking something that's really helpful for us to understand and us to know. As 21st century American Christians, if we're going to take everything that we need out of the, out of the book of Hebrews, we're going to have to have some background of the Jewish people and how God has worked in human history going all the way back to creation. So let's do that tonight. <laughs> let's start with creation and work our way up to Hebrews. How about that? You ready? I don't know if I'm ready. If we put it on a timeline and we think about it this way, we go all the way back to creation. Genesis 1:26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created. And the point here is that God made man unique. That we as a species are different from every other species on earth because we are created in the image of God. Meaning that in some way, we reflect the nature of who God is. And we can speculate about what that is because there are a lot of things that, where we are totally unique among every other created thing on the planet. There is no being that is more creative than we are, that loves to make things more than we do. There's no one that's even close. The idea that there's, there's wonder there's philosophy, there's reflection, there's, there's morality. These are all things that, you know, are not apparent in the animal kingdom. And I know that there are those who argue that they are, but even those, unless they're absolutely crazy, would have to admit that human beings are an order of magnitude way beyond anything else. There's just no denying that there's something unique about the human race. And God says, that's, that's me that makes you unique. And then he gave us this incredible thing called choice. The all-powerful creator God of the universe told us, gave us the power as his creation to tell him no. Which, you know, we take that for granted like we do so many other things, but it's pretty remarkable as well. He could have pre-programmed us to do whatever it is that he wanted us to do no matter what. But instead, he decided as image bearers, as beings created to reflect who he is, that we would be given free moral agency, meaning we can decide whether we want to do right or whether we want to do wrong. Amazing. Now, he said we wouldn't be exempt from the consequences of doing wrong, that he is a righteous God, he is a just God, and he must destroy evil. And so if we choose evil, we will be destroyed. That has to happen. 
because God is just. But we can choose to go our own way. And so that's exactly what we did. He put the tree in the garden, Genesis 2.17. He says, you're free to eat from any tree, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. This is the choice represented of rebellion. And the serpent shows up and says, you know, did God really say you could not eat from this tree? And the woman saw it, and it looked delicious. And the accusation that came across is God doesn't want you to do this. He doesn't want you to do this because if you eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then you'll be like God knowing good and evil for yourself. You'll get to choose what you think is right and wrong. You won't have to listen to what God says is right and wrong. And we were like, sign me up for that. And we like to say, oh, what a horrible decision. They were born in paradise in perfect harmony with God. Why would anybody do that? Yet we get very upset, very angry when somebody says that they want to tell us what right and wrong is for us. What is it that's in all of our hearts is this ardent desire. I decide for me what is right and what is wrong and no one can tell me any different. That goes all the way back to the garden. So humanity is beautiful and wonderful, unique and created in the image of God and twisted and broken and selfish and self-destructive and homicidal, both in one neatly packaged body. And the thing that is amazing to me about this, this is honestly One of the major reasons I'm a believer in the Bible is there is no other description of what I see in my heart and what I see in everyone else around me. Nothing compares to the idea that we were nobly made with incredible capacity for love and good and broken and twisted and desperately broken at the same time. And so we fell. They didn't die physically in that moment, but they died spiritually. They were born spiritually alive, connected with God. They ate from the tree. They rebelled from God. Sin entered into the world. And all subsequent generations of human beings who came from Adam and Eve were also born in spiritual death, broken. But God had an answer to this. He got in and he explained the consequences. He says, you can't live in the garden anymore. Your marriage is going to be difficult. It's going to be, you're going to be striving against each other now. Work is going to be hard. Everything that I had that was going to be so good, it's going to be, you're going to have to strive. It's going to be by the sweat of your brow. And then he says, the first hint of a, of a solution, though, where God has not given up on us. Genesis 3.15 says, I will put, so he's speaking to the woman, and he says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman. So he's actually speaking to the serpent. And between your seed and her seed, and her, her, her seed shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. And most theologians think this is the first allusion. This is uh, called the proto-evangelion. And what that means is it's the first gospel, the first time that we see that God has a plan through the descendant of woman to destroy the work 
of the serpent. So God sets this plan in motion and time moves on and man kind of gets more and more wicked and more and more further away from God and you get Noah and the flood and you get uh, the Tower of Babel and you get all these stories that you know, we've heard about but may not, maybe don't know a lot of details about. And then God looks down and he sees somebody that's, that's remarkable, someone who seems to respond in, in faith who wants to follow after him, and his name is Abraham. And so he takes Abraham and he says, I'm going to make a special relationship with you and with all of your descendants. We can read about that in Genesis 12, 2 through 3. He says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, Abraham, every nation of the earth will be blessed. Now that would be pretty cool. And what this is, is is this is God beginning to establish a way for him to communicate himself to all people of the world. And he's going to do it through this family. And Abraham then becomes the first Jewish man. For Jewish people, they see themselves as, and the way that they identify, I am a Jewish person is I am a descendant of Abraham. So Abraham is like the greatest guy in the Old Testament. He's the the original Jewish man who said yes to God. God sent him out and he said, I will follow you. But he's also broken. He does bad things. He lies to people. He cheats people. He makes mistakes. He doesn't treat his wife the way that he should all the time. And that's what we see as a theme in the Bible is that these are people who are a people of great faith, but they are also broken. That they are created in the image of God, fearfully and wonderfully made, knit together in their mother's womb, and they are desperately sick and twisted and broken. And we see a portrayal of even the greatest heroes of the Bible living with this conflicted nature. So the problem for the sin of man is going to come. It's going to come through the descendants of Eve. And now we know that God's plan, he's narrowed it down. It's going to come from the family of Abraham. Time goes on. Abraham has a son, Isaac. Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. And the promise of the Abrahamic covenant that we just read is passed on to his son, Jacob. And Jacob, again, is a mixed bag. He's known as a swindler, as a dishonest person, as somebody who cheats his older brother out of his birthright and who has a reputation and a story where he wrestled with God because he wanted to get God to give him a blessing. And he and God wrestled through the night and toward the end, it says God touched him on the hip and dislocated his hip for the rest of his life which in a culture where all you do is walk anywhere would have been a very unpleasant thing. But Jacob got a new name that night. He said, because you have striven with God and man, I will call you Israel, which means, by the way, to strive with God and man. And Jacob, who is now Israel, becomes the father 
of 12 sons. And eventually the nation of Israel would be divided into 12 tribes and each of his 12 sons become the, the, the head of these 12 tribes of this promised land that God had promised Abraham and his descendants that they would call their own. But before this time and before they could do that, they had more trials and more testing to go through. One of Jacob's sons, Joseph, leads them, the whole family, in a time of famine into Egypt because he's gained a position of power and could provide for this family. And for several generations, it goes amazingly well. But over time, a pharaoh arose who did not remember Joseph. And he saw all the Hebrew people, all the descendants of Abraham in his country, and saw them as a threat. So he decided to enslave them. And for 400 years, the people of Abraham would be enslaved in Egypt As God had promised Abraham himself in Genesis 15, 13, God said to Abraham, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a strange land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. So you can imagine being one of these slaves, being born into this time, (coughs) you'd be crying out. God, where are you? Where is this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that promised us that we would be greater than the stars in the sky and the sands on the sea, that we would be our own nation and that through us all nations of the world would be blessed? How is that going to happen when we are under Pharaoh's yoke? And in Exodus we read, God heard their groaning and he remembered his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God saw the sons of Israel and took notice of them. What do the people do? They cry out, what about your promises, God? God says, I am a God who keeps my promises. And he raises up a charismatic individual, a leader, an educated man, one from Pharaoh's own household named Moses to lead the people. And we all know the story of the plagues and the Ten Commandments. And God gives Moses his word and he comes down with the tablets. And in the word of God, it explains the mission of God and the promise of God. And he renews his covenant with his people. In Exodus 19, 5 through 6, it says, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So Moses goes back to the people of Israel and says, God wants us to be a nation of priests. He wants each and every one of us to show the whole rest of the world what he is like and how we should really live. And he wants to solve the problem of the human condition and he wants us to treat each other with love and justice and patience and kindness. And he wants us to be the example to everyone. And they're like, hmm... That sounds like a lot of work. (laughs) So the parting of the Red Sea, and they go and they are headed back, and they get within reach of the promised land that God has promised them, and they send out spies, Caleb and Joshua, to see and spy out the land that God has promised. And all the spies come back, and they're like, no way. No way we can do this. 
They are too big. They are too strong. We, we might as well go back to Egypt, except for Joshua and Caleb, who are like, listen, God could part the Red Sea. He could turn the Nile to blood. He could take out these guys too. And the people decide not to go in, and God says, okay, here's what we're going to do, extra laps. I'm going to have you wander around in the Sinai Peninsula. I'm going to make sure that you have food. I'm going to make sure that you live. I'm going to make sure that you're healthy. But I'm going to wait until the, first, the, the current generation passes away, and maybe your children will have the faith to listen to me. And they spend 40 years wandering in the desert. While they're doing that, God gives them the sacrificial system. They're living in tents, literally, moving as nomadic people. And God says, I live among you, so there's going to be a tent for me. Right in the midst of who you are. And in this tent, you're going to see regularly played out the drama that you have choice, that when you choose rebellion, there has to be punishment. And the punishment for sin is death. And they have a sacrificial system. But unlike the sacrificial systems of the people around them, they don't kill animals to feed their God. They kill an animal as an innocent substitute, one that is not a moral being, that didn't choose anything, that deserves its destruction to take their place. And this isn't a literal sacrifice that takes away sin. But it's a picture to them of the fact that the wages of sin is death. And on a regular basis, on a yearly basis, they learn that something that doesn't deserve to die has to die because of my evil and my rebellion. And it is by faith that they grow closer to God. God would say to them in Leviticus 26, 12, I walk also among you and be your God and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt so that you would not be their slaves. I broke the bars of your yoke and made you walk standing up. He said, I am a God who keeps his promises. And even though you keep rejecting me, even though you keep wanting to go back to Egypt, even though you keep not following through and listening when I have nothing but good things to give to you, we are in this together. And I'm going to set up my house right in your midst. Time goes on. In Deuteronomy, Moses is getting ready to die and he's freaking out because he's like, oh man, what are they going to do without me? This is just going to be terrible. You know, these people have barely held it together with me being here. And he says right before he dies, Deuteronomy 3.29, For I know that after my death you all will act corruptly and turn from the way which I have commanded you. And evil will befall you in the latter days, for you will do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger with the work of your hands. Guys, I'm about to die. Don't mess this up. We got a good thing going here. And they're like, yeah, yeah, don't worry. Weeboo. Go ahead and die. <laughs> and he does. And, Joseph take, or, and uh, Joshua takes over, and for a short period, there is a time where the people move forward. And in a lot of ways, that second generation is even more radical and even more faithful in listening to God. And they move in, and the, they take on the people there and God gives them great victory and they begin to establish the nation of Israel just as God had promised them. 
And then as they're there, they're looking around and they're like, we don't have Moses anymore. We don't have Joshua anymore. Who's going to lead us? And they begin to appoint judges, people who are brought up to raise and decide between court cases or moral issues and to provide some leadership for the people. The book of Judges is well characterized by Judges 2, 11 through 12. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They served the Baals and they forsook the Lord and the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods. From among the gods of the people who are around them, they bowed themselves down to them and thus they provoked the Lord to anger. Here they are supposed to be an influence on everyone else around them to show them the good way of God and the love of God and the truth of God. But they're surrounded by people with wicked divination who sacrifice their babies to the Baal. And they are beginning to look more like the people around them than have an influence on God on those people. And this period is defined in Judges 17.6. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel and every man did what was right in his own eyes. What does that sound like? Go all the way back to Genesis. You will be knowing good and evil for yourself. Be like God, knowing good and evil for yourself. So eventually they get tired of that and they want a king and everybody around them has a king and God's like, well, I have a plan and uh, yes, it was going to have a king, but what do you want? And they're like, give us Saul. He's tall, he's strong, he's going to, he looks like the kind of guy that, you know, can lead us and that's a terrible idea. Then God raises up for himself a a man, a shepherd boy named David. And David is ruddy and handsome. David is faithful. He loves God. He has this incredible devotional life. Much of it is preserved in the book of Psalms where he cries out to God and he's honest with God and he loves the word of God. But he's also selfish and an adulterer and a murderer and somebody who betrays the people who are closest to him. And once again, we have a hero who is created in the image of God, but deeply twisted and broken. But God loves him and calls him a man after God's own heart. And says to him, makes him a promise in Samuel 7:16, Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Before me forever, your throne shall be established. That there's going to be a ruler who comes in your line, David, who is going to rule in justice, in goodness, and in fairness, and whose rule will never end. So David has a son, and that's not him. His name's Solomon. He has some good characteristics. He really wants to wisely rule his people, but he's consumed by his greed, by his lust of the flesh, by his desire for more. And yes, he builds the permanent temple to take place of the tabernacle. Now that the people are established in Jerusalem, they build a beautiful house to carry out the same picture that God had given them in Leviticus of this sacrificial system. And this is literally God living in the city among his people. But he pushes his people so hard and has them build so much and has the, takes away their time and their money to accomplish his grand vision of what he wants it to be that after he dies, they rebel against him. 
And the kingdom, the nation of Israel in 930 BC is split in two between the northern tribe of Israel and the southern tribe of Judah. And the people are divided and broken and nobody's following after God. And this goes on for generations until eventually God comes in and says, I'd like you to meet the Assyrians. They will be your conquerors today. And the Syrians come in and wipe out the northern tribe of Israel after God warns them for generations that their wicked behavior is going to cause him to remove their protection. Suddenly the nation of Israel is gone and all that's left is the state of Judah. And it too continues to rebel against God and God brings in the Babylonians and they wipe them out and carry off all the implements of the temple and destroy the temple of God. There is no more Israel, but there is still descendants of Abraham. During the captivities of the people, once again, they're left wondering, where is God and why won't he protect us? What about the promises of God? And he raises up the prophet Isaiah who tells them of the coming Messiah. He says the Messiah in Isaiah 11.1, 1, then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. Who's Jesse? Jesse's David's dad. And a branch from his root will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. The spirit and wisdom of understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what he, his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide the fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. There will be a coming, a ruler in the line of David who is going to set everything right and make it good. And he is going to be good. And so you can imagine as these conquered people are spread all throughout the Babylonian and the Medo-Persian Empire, they're just waiting for God to come in and regather them and bring them back together. And that's exactly what he begins to do. He raises up the prophet Nehemiah who wins over the media Persia government and they allow him and actually pay for him to go back to Jerusalem and begin rebuilding the walls. And then there's a temple again and the people start coming back and they start gathering and there's a national identity and after several generations in captivity, all of a sudden there's an Israel again by some miracle, by some incredible picture of God keeping his promise to the descendants of Abraham. And we get to the prophet Malachi, the very last prophet, the very last book of the Old Testament. And we're left with Malachi 4, 4 through 6. God says, remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded in him, and Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. So I will not come and smite the land with a curse. So Israel's back and they're together and they have a temple and they have a nation and they have their independence and they're told the Messiah is coming. Watch, watch for Elijah because when he comes, then the Messiah will come. And they are like, we are waiting, Lord. We can't wait to see what you're going to do next. We can't believe you brought us back. And then radio silence for 400 years. Not a prophet, not a peep, 
waiting for God to come through with his promises. And while the people of Israel are waiting, the other nations of the world are on the move. A young man named Alexander of Macedonia rises up. He would become known as Alexander the Great, and he would conquer the known world, including the land of Israel during this time. He had a sense of destiny, a sense of purpose. He believed that the gods had chosen him to accomplish what no one else had accomplished, to unite the people and the cultures of the world. And he had a very eclectic sense that when they would come in and conquer a people, they would not try to wipe out their language or wipe out their religion. They would just try to incorporate it into their own. And as a result, the language and the art and the philosophy and the culture of this whole entire region of the known world became united under one rulership. And they had their own identity. The Hebrews were still Hebrews, but they were very fascinated with Greek philosophy and architecture. And nearly the whole world began to speak a trade language of Koine Greek, which was a part, it was a, it was a simpler version of the language of the philosophers, an incredible language for communicating abstract thought and ideas. And as this is going on, Alexander, who conquers the whole world, gets sick and dies as a very young man. And it's said that, you know, they came to him and they said, well, how do you, who's going to be your successor? And he says, leave it to the strong. And civil war breaks out and it divides up and some real nasty guys come in and take over and they give Israel a hard time and they want them to pay their taxes and they want them to worship them as gods. And as you can imagine, that causes a problem in the temple. And Israel's looking around and they're like, we have to fight these guys and throw off the oppressors, but they're a tiny, small people and the face of a giant empire. But there's this city off in the distance that made some serious progress, and they don't like the Greeks either. And they are these Italians who live in the city of Rome. And they say, maybe you guys could come over and we could work together and throw off these Greeks. And Rome's like, you want us to come over there? Sure, we'll come over there. And Rome comes and grows and envelops and become the new conquerors of the nation of Israel. They come in, and they are incredible organizers, incredible engineers. They build aqueducts. They build roads. You've heard the phrase, all, Rome's, all roads lead to Rome, because this is what they did. In order to maintain their vast empire as they took over what Alexander the Great had accomplished, they built a network of roads so that there could be communication and commerce across their entire empire, which made travel Safe. And so now the whole world in this region basically has the same language, the same cultural understanding. Travel is available in a way that it never was before, and safety and the rule of law reign supreme, setting up an incredible opportunity for a message, a good message, to be spread across the entire human race for the first time in human history. So this old high priest named Zechariah, whose wife has been barren, has a vision from the Lord in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, and is told that he is going to have a son, and his name is going to be John, and that he's going to be weirdly like Elijah. 
And this is how weird he apparently. <laughs> this, is, this is how the medieval interpretation of what John the Baptist must have looked like. And he eats locusts and honey and he runs around like a wild man in the wilderness and he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And all these people start getting back into their Judaism. John's baptism was one of remembering that we need forgiveness. And what was the temple all about? What was the sacrifice all about? And a lot of people thought, well, if we're going to throw off these Romans, we're going to need to up our faith and our adherence to the laws of Moses. And so everybody gets super excited and super energetic because it seems like maybe this is the Messiah that's going to come. If Elijah is now here, then the Messiah is going to be here. And rumor is that somewhere off in Bethlehem, a woman who was a virgin has become pregnant. And 20 or 30 years after that, a rabbi arises teaching repentance and love and mercy and that God is about relationship and not ritual and that the sick and the sinners are those who need God the most. And he is not like these other teachers. He is not like these other biblical heroes. They can't find anything wrong with him. He's poor. He's generous. He's patient. He's kind. He's giving. They test him. They attack him. They try to set him up. They try to give him temptation. And at every turn, that twisted, dark, greedy human nature does not seem to be present. He's incorruptible. So they kill him because he represents the best of who we are and what we are meant to be. And he claims to be the path back to who it is that God created us to be. He's the, the way, the truth, the light. And as many as come to him, they can receive the love of God and be the children of God once again. And we hung him on a cross. And while he was there, God took the punishment, the wrath that we all deserve and poured them out on this perfect person who is not just a person, who was God himself, the promised Messiah, going all the way back to the garden the seed of Eve that would crush the serpent's head, the descendant of Abraham that would be a blessing to all nations, the stem from the root of Jesse, the crueler and the king Messiah came and died so that we could be made right with God. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory, glory of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. And so once again, that choice, that choice that was made in the garden, you know, Adam and Eve were born united to God and chose rejection. We were born separated from God, but through Jesus Christ, we can choose redemption reconciliation. He made the path possible so that we have the same choice, that 
powerful, incredible, moving choice to tell God no is now a choice to tell God yes. And that's why we're here. And this is the pinnacle moment in all of human history where it all comes together and we ask the question, is God good and does he keep his promises? And the answer has to be yes. But that doesn't mean we won't suffer. It doesn't mean we won't have hardship. It doesn't mean we won't be exposed to the bad choices of everybody else that we're living with and there won't be hardship and pain and loss. But there can be love and there can be reconciliation. And this is what the Hebrews in our passage were living in the time when all of this was going on. And they were choosing yes. And they were losing their houses and they were being kicked out of their churches. And they were wondering how they were going to feed their children. And this division, another weird looking dude, this rift begins to occur in Judaism with this new way they call it. And they were accused, they were accused of being a cult. They were accused of uh, not being Judaism at all. And Saul, who was one of the great authorities of the Jewish people and one of the great rulers of the Pharisees, set out to persecute them and then met the risen Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus and was asked, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And was set and changed and sent out by Jesus to win all the non-Jewish people of the world to go and speak their Greek and use their artists and use their philosophers to help them understand the greatness of what happened on the cross. So, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers, that's all that. <laughs> right? <laughs> In the prophets, in many portions, in any, many ways. And these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he would make the world. For the original audience, what this meant was, is God still good? Am I still Jewish? Am I still connected? Is God's promises to the Jewish people, do they still apply to me? As I suffer, am I still connected with the thousands of years of human history where God has come through again and again? Is God going to be faithful? Do I still need to obey the rituals that we were, that we were taught, the calendar and the dietary laws? And how does Jesus fit in with the Old Testament? The author says, buckle up, because we're going to answer all those questions in this book. Because you are a true follower of Jesus Christ, which makes you a true follower of Moses and a true descendant of Abraham. As for us, well, there's a lot for us here, too, because we suffer we suffer for our faith, not like they did, not yet, but we suffer. 
And it's not, co- it's not that popular and it's not that cool to be a part of a Bible-believing community. And it's getting harder and harder and darker and darker. And the accusations are growing louder and louder that if you want to live, not just a life where you go and do something on Sunday morning and keep your views to yourself, but where you stand up and say that Jesus Christ died for the sins of mankind and all people need to know it, there's going to be a heavier and heavier price to pay for that kind of radical love and obedience to the word of God. And we're going to have to remember that God has always been intimately involved in the affairs of the human race, that he has always been working from creation until now to glorify himself, to bring us home, to bring us back under his wings and the fold of his family, to pay for our sins and to bring glory and love and truth and light to the broken human race. And we're going to have to remember that Jesus is the best picture of who God is. As we wonder, God, are you good? God, do you care? God, do you keep your promises? Remember what he said. Jesus is the ultimate form of understanding who God is. And that comes with the understanding that God wants a relationship, not a religion. And there you have Hebrews 1, 1 through 2. We are super grateful for the lessons of history and the recorded acts of your intervention over and over again in the human drama. We don't know where things are going to head It seems like things are moving further and further away from what you say is true and from what you say is right or wrong. But we are still in a great place where we have so much freedom and we have so much opportunity. And we just ask God that we would be able to maximize our effectiveness, our ability to bring your love and your truth into a culture that doesn't know you. And that if the price for that raises and gets higher. We pray that we, like so many before us in a long line of broken, sinful, but faithful children, that we will cling to you and remember that you are God that keeps his promises. Amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.